Good morning, church. <clears throat> I hope you're all doing well. I hope you had a great week. Uh, thank you, Pastor Andrew, for the prayer. Uh, thanks, Julianne, for reading scripture to us. Uh, we are continuing our series this morning in the book of Zechariah, and we'll be reflecting upon chapter two together. Okay, so far, uh, we learned that Zechariah was given eight visions all in the same night, and he was called to share these visions with God's people in order to offer them comfort and hope as they were in the process of rebuilding their lives after returning from Babylonian exile, okay? Uh, the first vision was that of a horseman surveying the earth. The second vision was that of a, a four horns and, and four craftsmen. And the third vision is what we'll be covering today, which was a vision of a city without walls. Now, the ESV translation, which we use, uh, is a slightly more literal translation, so it translates the Hebrew perizot as villages without walls. And, and that would be accurate because you know, the Hebrew word used there is in its plural form, so villages would be correct, but other more non-literal translations uh, use the more natural and, I would say, poetic expression of a city without walls, which is what I'm choosing to do today, all right? And that's not wrong either, okay? So um, if you think about it, you know, what's a city? It's, you can argue it's a collection of smaller towns and villages, right? There's more people. Uh, now, our passage today can basically be, uh, be broken down into two parts. There's a part where Zechariah is given a future vision of God's people, okay, so that, that's part one, uh, the vision part. And then there's a part where God gives us three commands through the mouth of Zechariah, and so we'll treat that as our application uh, piece for today, all right? So two parts, right? part one, let's look at that first, God's vision for his church. It says, and I, Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. A few weeks ago, uh, when we were covering the first vision of the horseman, we heard God saying that his house, if you remember, was going to be built, right, and that a measuring line was going to be stretched out over Jerusalem. So our vision today uh, has Zechariah seeing a man, right, carrying a measuring line, and so he asks, where are you going with that? And the man said to him, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Right? Now, so far, nothing would have surprised Zechariah because, you know, given the context, the vision of a man with a measuring line, it made perfect sense. Right? I mean, God not only used such an expression in the first vision, but, you know, to think of uh, measurements, right, it's, it's really a, a human need we have, right? We, we need, like, defined spaces. And so for us, of course, when we think of construction, measuring lines, it's a given. Uh, you know, what happens when you have too much of something, right? Too much, let's say, square footage in your homes to manage, you become easily overwhelmed right, by, the, by the amount of space 
you have to clean perhaps or to maintain, right? Some of you, you live in big homes, so I bet that sometimes you have to hire cleaners, right? You have to hire landscapers, right? The more you have, the more taxes you have to pay as well. And so it can get overwhelming rather quickly. And so measuring lines are useful to us. Our worship space also has limits, as you know. And someone um, once used a measuring line to construct this very building and limit this space. The fact that there are physical limitations to our meeting space is actually meant to limit the amount of people that we're able to accommodate, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm arguing that it's a human need. <laughs> we need to be able to limit our numbers based on our ability to actually, you know, do we have enough people to care? Do we have enough staff? Do we have enough administration to care for our people, right? Those things matter. And so using a measuring line to properly set dimensions, right, and to limit the scope of our living space or our workspace or our ministry space is not at all a bad thing. However, in this third vision, there's this surprise element that we're not supposed to overlook. And I have no doubt that Zechariah was surprised by this as well. In verse 3 it says, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. So there's this interpreter angel. Okay, the two angels in this vision. One's an interpretive angel, uh, and then one is a mysterious angel. <laughs> Scholars argue that this was probably a Christ figure, okay, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. But another angel, I would argue this Christ figure, he comes forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, here's the surprise element, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls or as a city without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. You see, this would have been especially surprising for a Jewish prophet like Zechariah to hear because as a Jew, right, think about it with me, when you thought about Jerusalem, you immediately thought about the temple walls that divided the Jews from the Gentiles, right? And you thought of the outer walls of the city that were meant to protect God's people from their enemies. I mean, the whole reason why the city had to be rebuilt was because Babylon destroyed it, after all. And so trying to envision a city without walls would have required a major paradigm shift. It's like, how are we going to, you know, keep your purity laws, God? I mean, how, we gotta separate somehow, right, from the Gentiles, don't we? How are we going to protect ourselves from the next invasion? Doesn't God know that we need these walls to survive? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And yet, God offers a vision of a city without walls. This, this is a surprising element. Right? And so what I wanted to do is kind of help you grasp this vision a little better. I, you, know, you may have seen this video, some of you, but 
I think some of you haven't, so I, I prepared a, a video for you to see. I would, I would call this the modern day vision <laughs> of uh, the church. Let's go, let's try this out. What you just saw was the kind of vision God had revealed to Zechariah, right? A growing city without walls. And through this vision, right, God was basically telling his people that yes, in the past, there was meant to be a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. But in the future, as Jesus has revealed, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, Right, the church is going to be like a city without walls, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, right, slave nor free, male nor female, for all will be one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful vision of the church. Brothers and sisters, aren't you tired of seeing how the world needlessly divides people? Right, and treats people as second-class citizens based on superficialities. When I was younger, I remember how airlines only used to divide the passengers into two groups. <laughs> I'm not sure if you remember those, remember those times, but I'm old enough, right? There was only two classes, okay? There was economy class, and then there was first class. And I thought even back then that's kind of strange, but nowadays, dividing passengers into four groups is the norm. Right, did I get that right? Maybe some of you are more familiar with this. But there's normally, if you're purchasing tickets, right, what is there? There's economy, and then there's what? What's the next level up? There's premium economy. And then if you pay a little more, you get to business class. And then what was the top dog? It's first class, right? Basically, if you're wealthier, you get treated much better. Right? That's how the world works. But it's not meant to be like that in the city of God. It's not meant to be like that in the church. Right? Whether one is from a poor tribe in northern Africa 
or a CEO of Wall Street. <clears throat> there is not meant to be a dividing wall between anyone in the city of God because we all share equal status in God's eyes. Amen? Now, I don't think any of you would object to that idea, right, that there shouldn't be a dividing wall between people based on social status, even if we'd all admit that it's easier said than done. But what we may object to is living in an unwalled city when we know that there are people surrounding the city <laughs> seeking to destroy the city. Kind of doesn't make any sense. Isn't there a legitimate need to guard the city from the next Babylonian invasion if you're an ancient Jew? That's a real concern. But look how God responds. Verse five. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her mists. See, God is promising here to be a wall of fire around his people, serving as our ultimate protection. You know, if you take this verse literally, okay, and believe that God shields us from our enemies as a literal consuming fire, then God bless you. I wish more people would take God's word at face value and simply believe that God is exactly as he described himself to be, okay? God bless you. But even if you were to take this figuratively, right, there would be nothing wrong with that either, okay? That's fine too. Because the main point is that Jesus, right, this angel of the Lord, promises to be our protector and shield and our ever-present help in times of trouble. So it's okay, right, if you're not such a literal person. It's okay to think that he's like a wall of fire who shields us from our enemies. Now, other than the fact that Jesus promises to be our wall of fire, what actually encourages me is that he doesn't dismiss our fears. Rather, he understands our fears and he appropriately responds to them. See, when he says, my city will be a city without walls, let's face it, that's, that's not a really uh, a comfortable thought, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't wanna live in a city without walls, but see, God knows how frightening that thought can be to us and he, he doesn't leave us hanging, right? <laughs> Rather, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He, he doesn't dismiss our fears. And he basically says, don't fear. Like, I understand your fear, but don't fear because I will be a wall of fire for you. You know, when I'm not pastoring, guess what I'm doing? I'm coaching baseball, right? I'm coaching a lot of baseball these days. And, and when coaches see his players discouraged and dejected and fearful of the other team, what does a coach say? A coach will often say, hey, look, eyes on me, right? Eyes on me, right? And he does so to get his players' attention. And God is basically saying, eyes on me, 
my people. But he says it not only to get their attention, but to assure us that we can trust in him. Okay? It's, not, it's not eyes on me, pay attention. It's eyes on me because you can trust in me. Eyes on me, right? trust in me. I will be your wall of fire. In light, in light of this vision, Zechariah speaks on God's behalf, starting from verse six. And there are basically three commands that are given to us. And this is the application piece, okay? Three commands. The first is, flee Babylon, right? The, the land of the north is referring to Babylon, okay? So basically, flee the land of the north, flee Babylon, and then it says, escape to Zion, right? Escape to Jerusalem, escape to the city of God. Verse six, right? Up, up, flee, declares the Lord, free from Babylon, and then verse seven, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Right? I mean, why would, why would God have to speak such a word, because even though, even though the Jews were free to return home, many of them unfortunately chose to remain in Babylon. That's why he had to speak these words. You know, one thing you need to realize is that for us, Babylon stands for the city of man, which is directly opposed to the city of God, the city of Zion. Right? And in God's eyes, right, you're either a city of, or you're, you're, rather, you're, um, you're either a citizen of Babylon rather, or, or a citizen of Zion. Right? But, you know, we learn that sometimes a citizen of Zion can grow too fond of the city of Babylon and not want to leave. Right? It's going to remain and settle in Babylon. And that's what's being addressed here. But why would that be? Why would that be? What's at the heart of it? Why would a citizen of Zion want to live in Babylon instead? You know, I, looking back, I mean, reflecting on what they must have been going through, I, I would have been able to come up with a bunch of excuses myself, I think. Like, if I were an ancient Jew and I was forced to live in Babylon for several decades, I think I would have learned very quickly how to adapt I'm a very adaptable person, right? That's at least my assessment of myself. I think I would have found, found a way to settle down and, and work the system and actually you know, do well for my family. And so there would have been all sorts of practical reasons why a Jew, I believe, would have stayed in Babylon. Just convenience. But based on the words that God offers to those who are still in Babylon, see, we're able to see that the predominant reason why many of the Jews chose to remain there was due to fear. There was a strong fear factor. That's why not only does God give Zechariah the vision of the wall of fire, I will protect you, but in verse eight, right, the following verses, God basically offers a threat to the enemies of God's people and says, for he who touches you, my people, touches the apple of my eye. That's what God says. 
And behold, I will shake my hand over your enemies, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. God, God offers a threat to the enemies of God's people. So brothers and sisters, the primary reason why God's people remained in Babylon during Zechariah's time, and the reason why many in our day, Christians remain in Babylon, figuratively speaking, is because of fear. We're afraid of what people may do to us if we did choose to flee Babylon and clearly identify as a citizen of Zion. And so if you're still living in Babylon, right, that's, that's the real reason why you haven't left. And so in order to allay our fears, God says this morning, there's no need to be afraid because don't you know, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That's what God is telling us. So why be afraid? If you didn't know, the apple of the eye refers to the very center of the eye, right, which is called the what? The pupil, right? And the fact that God is equating us with the apple of his eye means, right, that he is essentially willing to do anything to protect you and me from harm. So why be afraid? That's his point. I mean, think about the things that you do to protect your eyes. What do you do to protect your eyes? I mean, our eyes are such a delicate part of our body. What do we do? We, we have sunglasses, goggles, or masks, helmets, Wherever we go, right? If there's even a slight danger, we cover our eyes, don't we? We do everything, anything to protect our eyes. Now, I thought about what I would do if someone tried to attack my eyes. What do you think I would do? <laughs> I would sacrifice my hands, my arms. If I could lift my legs, I would do that. Can't do that anymore, too stiff. But Wouldn't you do the same? You would do, you would do whatever possible, whatever you, can, you could to protect yourself. And that's what God wants us to realize here. He's saying, I will do whatever I can to protect you from your enemies. And guess what? He did, he did just that, right? He did just that through history. Because not only did he use his arms and hands to protect us, but he gave up his most precious possession, right? his one and only son, to defeat our enemies once and for all so that we would no longer have to worry about our future security, okay? which takes us to the next command. The second command is sing and rejoice, God says. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So sing and rejoice. Right? The most appropriate response to God's saving mercies would be to sing and rejoice, don't you think? The opposite would be what? To grumble and complain, right? So which one are you better at doing? Are you better at singing and rejoicing or are you better at grumbling and complaining? Brothers and sisters, if you haven't yet experienced the joy of singing to the Lord, it, 
very likely means that there's something missing in your understanding of what the Lord has actually done for you. Okay? Because singing God's praise isn't just an expression of our joy and gratitude for what he's done for us. Okay? Our singing is meant to complete our joy in the Lord. Uh, there's that, that concept was articulated very well by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are, right? The delight is incomplete till it's expressed, right? It's like we, we can't contain that expression of praise because until we do so, we, we feel incomplete. Our joy is not complete. That's, that's how praise and joy are tied together, that's why when you're generally thankful for, some, for, for something someone has done for you, you can't help but to express joy and gratitude through praise. Right? To, to not say anything, it feels too wrong. <laughs> like something's missing. That's how it is with praise to God. Let me share an example. I, I, I really hate to do this because I feel like, in a, in a sense, I'm boasting, but... <clears throat> That's not my intention this morning, okay? I was at Costco several weeks ago, actually. It was a very busy time, uh, <clears throat> packed. It was a packed Costco, Fairfax, always packed, right? But this day was especially packed. Uh, I just needed, like, actually one or two items. <laughs> That's why I went during that busy time. Normally, if I'm, if I'm doing a whole cartload, I would go when it's emptier. But I just had to just kind of slip in and get something, I believe, for church. And then uh, I come out, I'm on checkout line, you know, the, uh, what do you call those, the uh, express lines, whatever. Um, and then there was his family, okay, it was uh, mom and dad, and I, th I think they were about two young kids, and their cart was full, okay. I noticed the dad, his credit card wasn't working, right, and he kind of kept on swiping, and he was like so flustered, like so stressed because like people were waiting and they were getting angry. <laughs> And so, without him even knowing, I, I, I looked at the uh, cashier, like, kind, of, kind of stood next to the thing, making sure things were processed correctly. I just gave her my card and, and let her swipe it. And it wasn't a small amount, by the way. I was like, you know, I was like, okay, this once a year thing. <laughs> this, this once a year. So, uh, I swiped it. And I, I wanted to kind of like, you know, quietly leave without him detecting, trying to try to be like the, I don't know, I guess an angel or something. <laughs> um, and so I, I, paid, I paid the amount. I was walking out quietly. Uh, the, the dad was still like trying to search for a different card, <laughs> you know, kind of arguing with, arguing with uh, his, his wife, actually. So I kind of felt bad. But then the, uh, the cashier kept on actually saying, you know, it's already done. It's, it's paid for. It's paid for. Okay, you can go, right? And he was so confused, right? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm, I'm escaping the scene. Um, and then I'm about to leave Costco, 
And the guy, I mean, this, again, Costco is packed, okay? So I didn't know how he found me, but uh, he found me. He, he taps my shoulder, he stops me, and he's like, you know, in his broken English, he couldn't speak English very well. He said, thank you, okay? I wanna thank you, okay? And I said, you're welcome, no problem, right? But I, I share that example to you to kind of give you a sense that that's natural. Like, if, if something is done to you, an act of grace, right, is bestowed upon you, then what, what should you be doing? Like, what should your natural response be, right? Your natural response should be, you're gonna do whatever you can, you're gonna cut through the crowd, right? Find that guy, that bald guy, <laughs> and you're gonna do your best to thank him, right, in your broken English. <laughs> that's, that's what any normal person would do. And so, how true should that be when it comes to our relationship with God? <clears throat> if you're truly thankful to the Lord, right, and if you truly rejoice in what he has done for you, I believe that you will sing in order to complete your enjoyment of him. Right? That's the point. Right? Sing. Third, the third command is to be silent, God says. He says, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. That's the last verse. And you might be confused as to why God would say, be silent, right after he says, sing and rejoice. But the key to understanding this command is to pay attention to the fact that this command is addressed to all flesh. In other words, God is declaring his authority over all people, right? Believer and unbeliever alike. And he's commanding them to recognize his authority over them. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. As I was reflecting upon this command, one image that came to mind was a sellout crowd in Madison Square Garden where the New York Knicks had fought some great battles against Michael Jordan, the Bulls, right? I mean, the Knicks fans back in those days, they hated Jordan. I mean, they may have respected him, but they hated him. <laughs> and every time they see him play, they would curse at him. They said all sorts of nasty things to hopefully get him off his game. But, right, the louder the crowd grew, right, in their jeer, what did Jordan do? Right? He was so clutch, right? <laughs> he, he did what he normally he, uh, did, and he would make all these clutch shots, and after making a clutch shot, what do, we, what do we see him do? What's his gesture? He would go, with his long fingers, right? My fingers are probably half his size, right? It's like, shh, right? like, shh, be silent. Be silent, because I am the, <laughs> I'm the God of the court, right? This is my court, right? This is my house. Be silent. Right? That's, the, that's his point. Right? The same thing happens in an actual courtroom. Right? Consider the judge who, in order to quiet down an unruly crowd, right, strikes his gavel. Right? Order in the court. Order in the court. Right? That's the judge's way of saying, be silent. This is my court. This is my house. It's the same idea here being conveyed to us 
See, when, when grumblings and complaints arise from the world and maybe even from our own hearts, right? The unbelieving nations, they arise, right? they complain to God, how is it fair that you first choose Israel over every other nation, right? How is it fair that you're now trying to punish us, right? The Jews would have risen up and complained, why would you let the Gentiles in now? <laughs> what about the, all, all the kosher laws and, and, and circumcision laws and all the other purity laws that you're asking us to keep? This is going to lead to madness. And what complaints have arisen from our hearts lately, brothers, sisters? Now, whatever complaints and grumblings we may have, I believe God is saying to all of us, be silent. This is my court. This is my house. Who are you to question me and my justice? It's a humbling word, but it's so true, isn't it? Brothers, sisters, as we consider this vision of a city without walls, let's not forget that we were once standing outside of the walls, hoping to enter in. But because of what Jesus has done for us in breaking down the walls that once separated us from God, we have been given this blessing and privilege to become now citizens of Zion. So then what? Let's rejoice. Let's sing. Let's not be a compromised people who live with one foot in Babylon and one foot in Zion. Rather be fully present in Zion. And lastly, let's fully place our trust in our God who governs this world with his perfect wisdom and justice. And let's be silent before him. Let's humble ourselves. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for revealing the vision you have for your church this morning and for once again reminding us that your ways are higher than our ways. But we acknowledge that oftentimes we measure dimensions and build walls, not only because of our own human limitations, but out of fear of the unknown and fear of our enemies. So how comforting it is to know that you will protect us. You promise to protect us as a consuming wall of fire. We also acknowledge that we often seek the comforts and glories of Babylon. So we're thankful for your promise that you will also be the fulfillment of our deepest longings as the glorious presence in our midst. But do help us, O oh Lord, to flee from the allure of Babylon and to find refuge in the city of Zion and teach us to sing and rejoice in the abundance of your saving mercies, that our lives would be filled with praise and worship now and forevermore. Lord, you are the judge of all who silences every criticism and every grumbling spirit that arises from human pride. So then may our hearts be still before you, acknowledging your sovereignty over all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.